Ray Kurzweil, the American inventor and futurist, have tended to do that. They say it's coming whether we like it or not, and we need to adapt ourselves to it. But I don't see technology that way, and I think most historians of technology don't see it that way either. They see technology and society as co-constructing each other over time, which gives human beings a much greater space for having a say in which technologies will be pursued and what direction we will take, and how much we choose to have them come into our lives and in what ways. And I think that is important to emphasize, that we still have agency. We may not be able to stop the river from flowing, but we can channel it down pathways that are more or less aligned with our values. I think that's a very important point to make when we talk about this. What's happening is bigger than any one of us, but as we communicate with each other, we can assert our values and shape it as it unfolds over time and channel it on a course that we'd prefer. Sean Elling Whatever shape it does take, we're not talking about some distant future here. We're talking about the middle years of this century, right? Michael Dess. Absolutely. Sean Elling. Well, before I hurl a bunch of alarmist questions at you, let's pause for a second and talk about the positive aspects of this technology. How will human life improve as a result of this revolution? Michael Bess. I think it's going to improve in countless ways. These are going to be technologies that are hard to resist because they're going to be so awesome. They're going to make us live longer, healthier lives, and they're going to make us feel younger. So some of the scientists and doctors are talking about rejuvenation technologies so that people can live, have a longer, not only lifespan, but health span, which would mean that you could be 100 years old, but feel like a 45-year-old, and your mind and body would still be young and vigorous and clear. So one aspect has to do with just quality of basic health and having that for a longer period of time. Some of these chemicals, maybe some of the new bioelectronic devices, will allow us to improve our cognitive capacities. So we'll be able to have probably augmented memory, maybe greater insight. Maybe we'll be able to boost some of the analytical functions that we have with our minds. And, in other words, sort of a broad-spectrum way, make ourselves smarter than we have tended to be. There will also be a tendency for us to merge our daily lives, our daily activities, ever more seamlessly with informatic machines. It's science fiction now to talk about Google being accessible by thought, but that's not as far-fetched as many people think. In 30 or 40 years, it's possible to envision brain-machine interfaces that you can wear, maybe fitted to the outside of your skull in a sort of non-intrusive way that'll allow you to connect directly with all kinds of machines and control them at a distance, so your sphere of power over the world around you could be greatly expanded. And then there's genetic technologies. I imagine that some of them will be a resistance to cancer, or perhaps to certain forms of cancer, that could be engineered into our DNA at the time of conception. What's more exciting to me is going beyond the whole concept of designer babies and this whole new field of epigenetics that is coming out. What I see there as a possibility is that you'll be able to tinker with the genetic component of what makes us who we are at any point in your life. One of the most awful aspects of designer babies is somebody's shaping you before you're born. There's a loss of autonomy that's deeply morally troubling to many people. But if you're 21 years old and you decide, okay, uh, now I'm going to inform myself and make these choices very thoughtfully, and I'm going to shape the genetic component of my being in precise, targeted ways. The way it's looking with epigenetics is we're going to have tools that allow us to modify our character, the way our body works, the way our mental processes work, in very profound ways at any point in our lives, so we become a genetic work in progress. Sean Elling What you're describing is utterly transformative and in many ways terrifying. You point out in the book that social systems have always had time to adapt to these technological watersheds and to develop new habits and new values. 
but that won't be the case this time, will it? Michael Bess. No, that's one of the things that worries me. Humans need time to adjust, and I'm not sure we'll have enough. I don't agree with people like Kurtzwheel who say there will be an exponential acceleration of biotechnologies. There are some aspects of our world that do advance exponentially, like computer processing power, but the fact that there has been an acceleration in the last century seems to be undeniable, and the rate of acceleration seems to be increasing. So even if it's not exponential, it's very impressive, and it means that drastic changes can come about much more quickly than they have in the past in human history. And it takes time for humans to consensually devise new habits, new practices, new attitudes, to arrange their lives in a way that makes those lives fulfilling and stable. And there are institutional networks all around us that allow us to continue to have a sort of predictable structure to our lives from one day to the next, from one year to the next, and so forth. All these structures, you build them gradually, slowly, and it